0: And driving home, a uh, drunk driver uh, jumped his lane and uh, smashed head-on into our minivan. When the dust settled, my wife, Linda, then 42, was killed. And one of my children, Dinah Jane, she was four at the time. Mm-hmm. And My mother, who was visiting us for the weekend, also died in the accident. Uh, her name was Grace and she was 75. Our Much of our identity is shaped around things that are very fragile and fleeting. I think that the greatest danger people face is not the initial loss, whatever it happens to be, but the long-term consequences that are based more on the choices that they make.
1: Hey, everybody, want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit Podcast, where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard man, does it get hard sometimes. That is why we do what we do, these podcasts. And uh, my name is Mitch Schultz, and I am your host, and I'm also the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. So I'm excited about today's episode. I say that about every episode, but this one is particularly personal to me. It is unique to my own healing, uh, the subject, the man that I'm going to be interviewing today. Uh, Sometime I'd I'd love to sit down and, and with my wife Elaine, and uh, tell the story of our own losses. Uh, you know, we've I've alluded to it a number of times in these podcasts. Those of us that, those of you that don't know our, our story, I think it benefit you if we could just sit down and just tell you the whole story. Uh, but just in a nutshell, it was about 20 years ago we were serving as um, uh, church planters, international workers in England. And after about six, seven years of really fruitful v- ministry there, my wife fell ill. It turned out that she had a uh, a brain tumor that had no place to grow anymore, and she slipped into a coma. Was operated on, and uh, we were able to come back to the states about six weeks, two months later. Uh, but she had uh, gone through a lot of loss because of the the tumor being on the speech center. And just a couple weeks, as she was, uh, when we were back here in in Georgia, she was in heavy rehab, occupational therapy. Our oldest son Travis was. Uh, suddenly uh, exhibiting some strange symptoms of balance issues. And it turned out a couple weeks later, we found out that he also had a brain tumor. His was inoperable. It was on the brain stem. And uh, he lost his life to this 10 months after being diagnosed. Well, one day, and this is uh, kind of a setup for what we're going to do today, I was at church and the pastor handed me a book that, apart from the Bible, during those 10 months was probably the most important reading that I did. Um, in fact, it helped me to throw out some anchors, and every time they landed on solid ground. And that book was called A Grace Disguise. that had just been published, I think, a couple years before that by Gerald Sitster. Uh, what was unique about this book is that he is a, a professor of theology and experienced tremendous loss himself, and he'll tell you the story as we interview him today. Um, so that was what was unique to me, is that, uh, to, to just have someone struggle with the whole notion of God's sovereignty and how human tragedy fits into all that by someone who uh, was an expert in the Bible. So what we get in that book was not someone teaching in front of a class and this just being abstract knowledge, but someone who was still going through. In fact, the book was written to really process his own, his own grief. So I have the privilege today to actually interview Gerald Sidster. Uh, not just about the book, but about his journey, his life. And it's a fascinating conversation. And uh, just a little bit about him. He's a professor of theology and senior fellow at Whitworth University. Uh, He's written quite a few books, eight books. Uh, Two that I've read are Grace Disguised," and then later he published A Grace Revealed. Hey, I cannot wait for for you to hear uh, this interview that I did with Professor Gerald Sitzer. Let's get into it right now. Okay, I have a a tremendous privilege today to be interviewing an author by the name of uh, Jerry or Gerald Sitzer. Did I pronounce that correctly?
0: It's Sitzer, S-I-T-T-S-E-R, Sitzer.
1: Okay, okay. Well, thank you for setting that correctly. uh, It will definitely determine how accurate we are in the rest of the interview here, but thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it,
2: Jerry. My privilege.
1: Yeah, just uh, a little context here. How you you come into my story? I, um, you know, most people who listen to my podcast have heard my story before. But uh, during a, a hard season of our lives, I shared with you a little bit during before I hit record here of uh, my wife having brain cancer when we were living in England back in '99. And just shortly after that, my my son had brain cancer and he struggled through that for 10 months and ended up, as my wife was improving, uh, working really hard at regaining her speech and her cognitive abilities and uh, just her bearings. And in fact, it was later that it overwhelmed me that here was a mother who was not able to really significantly interact or nurture her son who was passing away. Um, It's interesting that that hit me uh, sometime later. Um, but it was during the halfway through the 10 months of his, uh, his crisis, he had had radiation treatment and had a, a little period of improvements. Uh, someone handed me a book, and I, I don't remember who it was, but it was by someone I'd never heard of before. The title of the book was A Grace Disguised, and I have, uh, I have read that book three or four times since. I have recommended it to people who uh, who have been going through a hard time, and you are the author of that book. So thank you for uh, putting your story into the form of a book. And uh, I'm just one guy of many I know who've been significantly impacted by it. So thank you. And thank you. Tell us a little bit about, uh, uh, let me, let me uh, this is something that's fascinating to me about, about that book. You are uh, a professor uh, of uh, biblical studies, is that correct? Church history. Church History, okay, and you are what university are you at to give us a little Whitworth context.
0: Uni- Whitworth University in Spokane Washington.
1: Okay, and uh, you you had a hard experience yourself, and uh, you you wrote this book. I mean, what I appreciated about it is written from an, academ- an academic who was experiencing a personal crisis, and uh, so your your struggle with your theology uh, really resonated with mine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, someone who's experiencing severe pain, having to think theologically and try to process that in the grid of what you believe. Yeah. Uh, so, that, again, that's the fascinating context of me. But, t- yeah, tell us your story.
0: Well, I was uh, married at the time, and uh, we had four children. We had uh, fairly recently moved uh, from uh, Chicago to Spokane. I got my Ph.D. at the University of Chicago. And after having served as a pastor for 10 years, and then I moved out here to resume or assume a position uh, teaching theology at Whitworth University. And my wife, Linda, was a homeschooler, and she had just completed um, a unit on uh, Native American cultures as part of the curriculum. It was only the two oldest because my kids at the time were eight, six Four and two, so only the two oldest were in school, and we did a field trip and uh, went to uh, a powwow and met with tribal chiefs. And uh, interestingly enough, one of the topics of the conversation was uh, the problem of alcohol at mm. uh, this particular tribe, and really a, a problem that uh, seems to uh, affect most tribes uh, in the United States. And and just the nature of the brokenness of sure. those uh, uh, cultures. And driving home, a uh, drunk driver uh, jumped his lane um, and uh, smashed head on into our minivan. And uh, when the dust settled, my wife, Linda, then 42, was killed. And one of my children, Dinah Jane, she was four at the time. Mm. And my mother, who was visiting us for the weekend, also died in the accident. Uh, her name was Grace, and she was 75. Um, my other children were injured, one seriously, John. He was two at the time, and he eventually spent uh, several weeks in traction and then three months in a body cast. But he's since recovered. He's six one and athletic, and married, and has two kids now. So he's doing just fine. Uh, but um, it was really difficult to adjust to that catastrophic. What, what, year, what year was that, Jerry? 1991, September 27, 1991.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, were you in the car with them or following them?
0: All, all seven of us were together. We're in the car. And the line mm-hmm. between the living and the dead was very clear, Mitch. It was quite mysterious to me. I mean, we were hit head on. I have no rational explanation why some people lived and some people died. And I'll tell you, I turned that over in my mind for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. You know how this works is when something happens that you don't want, you keep going over it. You work that ground until it's as fine as dust. Mm-hmm. because you simply don't want it to be true yeah. and so you reimagine how you could change the day or control your circumstances so it what wouldn't be true but the fact is it was yeah and and no so i was assigned the responsibility of raising a sure. very traumatized 8-year-old and 6-year-old and 2-year-old in the wake of that accident
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you were asking me before we hit record a little bit about my story, and you asked a a, a very perceptive question, one that I've been asked a lot, never been able to answer it, Uh, you know, with with two of my family members having brain cancer, brain tumor, serious injuries uh, to the brain or trauma to the brain within several months, uh, you know, what, and you were, you were looking more for, was there anything in the context where we lived in England that might have caused that? And there's, there's no way of knowing, you know, there's no way of, Mm -hmm. and, and there's that, that spiritual layer too, where we try to make sense of things. You know, we try first to explain things away, uh, rationally, of course, in your case, someone drank, was drunk, was careless, and there's that tragedy, but you're still left with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Definitely a conviction of God's sovereignty and how this all fits in. There. And that, that's a big part of your book. I'll be quoting a few things that I highlighted from your book and revisited recently. Mm. Uh, but let me, what, where were you in the process of, of recovery, of healing uh, when you wrote this book? Uh, what, what led up to writing the book?
0: Yeah, it's interesting you would say, where were you in the process of recovery and healing? I've been in the process now for 27 plus years. I can imagine. So one yeah. of the things I've, I've learned in, in, in uh, this whole journey is that you don't get over, you grow into,
2: mm. and people
0: who want to get over actually really slow down the process of healing because they think there's some sort of magical thing on the other side and a return maybe to some kind of familiar world or normalcy, and that's taken away from us. That We can't ever reclaim that. That's why I call these irreversible losses. Irreversible losses uh, create a set of circumstances in which we can't return to the life we had before. Mm -hmm. In my book, I make the distinction between a broken leg and an amputation. Yes. And your experience and mine, and of course, the experience of many listeners is an amputation, not a broken leg. Mm
2: -hmm. It
0: creates a whole new set of circumstances in which we have to live out our lives. So, I can honestly say I haven't really recovered. I've grown. I haven't gotten over something. I've really grown into it. So I wear it now more comfortably than I did mm-hmm. before. Now, back to your question. So I had a good uh, a close circle of friends here who um, kind of walked with me through this journey. A, a small group of men surrounded me right after the accident. And believe it or not, we're still meeting together 27 plus years that later. That is
1: amazing.
0: Wonderful. And, you know, of course, now, I mean, there. one of my best friends lost his wife three and a half years ago. In fact, Julie plays a role in the book that I wrote. Mm. She became John's caretaker and she died of cancer three and a half years ago. So uh, lots of life has been lived between now and then. And some of those friends began to agitate a little bit and say, your perspective is really fresh and informed and we think you have a kind of obligation to write. Mm. It was interesting. They put it in terms of obligation or duty or calling, not uh, in terms of, say, of uh, a recovery or catharsis or whatever. They weren't interested in that. They said, you simply have a responsibility to the larger public to write this down. And at first, I just utterly dismissed it and said, no, I won't do that. Well, finally, I was convinced otherwise, and my first draft was about 80 pages of nothing but theology. (laughs) In other words, I wanted to keep it at arm's distance.
2: Sure, sure. And
0: I remember where we were sitting in the living room. I'm in our living room right now. Where we were, were sitting, when about five or six of my good friends here in Spokane came over, they had read the 80 pages, and they talked about it and said, great theology, fresh, insightful, and so on and so forth. And then there was this terrible silence.
2: <laughs>
0: and one person looked at me and said, but Jerry, you're not in the story. Mm. story. And it's not in the story. And it's not going to be helpful to people if it's if there's no story. Mm. And so I said, no, I can't do it then. And they said, maybe this is a situation where a kind of moral obligation even has to run over your own kind of sense of privacy and uh, uh, so on. So that's why I wrote the second chapter of the book, whose loss is worse. Uh, I wrote that to protect me wow. because I didn't return my experience into a kind of, uh, um, oh, um, oh, what's the word I could use? A, 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 a kind of evidence of my, of the tear of the terrible nature of my suffering and how much worse it is from everybody else's. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is. I think it's different as I, as I put almost like a Greek chorus in that particular uh, chapter, which I keep repeating time and again, uh, whose loss is worse. Doesn't matter. They're all bad, just bad in different ways. So I don't know anything about the rejection of divorce. I don't know anything about the kind of slow, erosive death of a son from cancer. I only know this particular tragic experience. It's yours. Yeah. And it's mine. And Mm. so when I did that and wrote that chapter in, I felt freedom to write my story without giving the impression it's the only story or it's the worst story, neither of which are true.
1: So that freed you up then?
0: It did free me up. And Mm. I could do my theological reflection in the context of narrative, and that's what I tried to do. Yeah, The book is actually... More theological than it appears to be, but because it is, uh, it's sort of disguised in the narrative. It doesn't appear to be theologically heavy-handed at all. I hope not. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly was drawn to the the thread of the theology through the whole story. I mean, kept. It's what kept your world together. It's what it's what uh, allowed you to. It it gave you guardrails to process your story. I think, and it gave me. Guardrails to be able to process my story. What what does that do? What does it do to you? Because I've had this happen before. Someone will, you know, hear my story. Uh, I wrote a book also about my, you know, our story. Um, You know, people will talk about how it 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 impacted them. It helped. What does that do to you when you hear? uh, Maybe even strangers or you hear someone like me say, "Hey, that that story, your story, your book, really." Help me to be grounded and and help me to keep my sanity in the midst of my crisis yeah.
0: well it's a perceptive question uh, mitch um, i I'm always grateful and I say so um, it, it, it's a high price to pay to write yeah. a book it, it serves the, the the good of other other people, and mm-hmm. I remind myself of that too, so there's not a lot of glory in this i 'm um, just grateful, and then I move on with my own life. You know I had a chance to turn this book into a career the first few years, and I just consistently decided to turn down speaking engagements. I wanted to be a university professor, I wanted to raise my kids mm. and i didn 't want either the, the experience or the book to become the defining episode of my life
1: but it, but it, but yeah, it, it had a, season, a it case. had a season for you. There was a season, though, where that was your life, or a span of how many years?
0: Well, I would say yes and no. I mean, um, sure, the accident created uh, a set of circumstances, a context in which to live out my life. Mm -hmm. But I don't choose to look at the accident as the defining moment. I choose to look at how I responded, and by the work of the grace of God as the defining moment. And that's gone on for many years now. I mean, I raised three kids, and they're all married and have kids and I remarried 8 years ago and her two daughters are really close friends of my kids actually the relationships predate ours mm. and uh, i've written lots of other books and enjoy my work as a university professor so I, I just didn't let the accident kind of define the terms for my life.
1: Sure. Yeah. Was, that, was writing that book necessary for you to be able to, uh, and I don't, want, I don't mean move on in the sense of closure because I, you know, we've already determined that the healing is yeah, a lifelong don't, don't process. Actually,
0: no. Um, rereading my journal was cathartic for me because I kept the journal mm-hmm. after the accident. And I never cracked it to read it until I began to think about writing the book. And once I did the theological draft, I realized I had to revisit those pages. And that was really traumatic for me, Mitch, reading that journal. Mm, I, I I I did not realize how dark my world had been, how hard that experience is. You know, memory has a way of changing the nature of the experience itself by how we remember it. You know, it's kind of like the classic example of a of a great high school athlete who going into her senior year is slated to be the you know, number one score in the state. And she gets a serious knee energy and injury and it knocks her out of her final season. Maybe she is stripped of her college career too. And at the time, it's just nothing but darkness and disappointment. And 10 years later, she's an orthopedic surgeon working on knee injuries. And she realizes that that set the stage for that calling in her life and she remembers the injury differently, Yeah. right? Well, that's kind of what happened to me too. So I read the journal, took notes on it, burned the journal. I just could not, I had to let that go, and wrote the book, not so much as a catharsis, but as a sense of obligation. And then I took the book when it was done, the first book that was published that the publisher sent to me, and I laid it on a communion table in the chapel of our school, and I prayed over it, and I released it to god i 've never looked at amazon i don 't know the rough i mean I know rough estimate, but i don 't really know how many copies have been sold i get I get copies of foreign language translations and it 's been translated into twenty languages now but outside of that i don 't think about it much mm. i get no I get a lot of letters and emails probably have thousands by now, and I respond to those, but it it 's not it's not a dominant feature of my life. I'll just put it that way.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's a strange platform, isn't it? You know, something like this is what makes you well known. You would have never been, you know, have had this, this, uh, profile had it not been for the tragedy. And, and I think, yeah, there's, there's, uh, I know in my case there's, you know, when, uh, when I asked you how do you react when people thank you, uh, there's a sadness there sometimes that, uh, you know, it, it it was at my expense, I think in my weaker moments, I, I feel that. Um, yeah. That actually, you know, leads up to another question here. You use the, uh, I love your, your description of the enlarging of the soul, though suffering enlarges the soul. In fact, let me read a sentence here. You might remember writing this. Uh, you say I did not get oh, over the loss go, of my there. loved
0: ones. What? I've read the book once. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> since I wrote it, and I read it only when they were coming out with the anniversary edition ten years later. Yeah. Well, so, well, Jerry, let me I let me tell you. This.
1: Yeah, <laughs> let me tell you what you wrote. <laughs> uh, you said this: I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life. Like soil receives decaying matter until it becomes a part of who I am. Sorrow took up a permanent resonance in my soul and enlarged it. What, do you, what led you to say that? As you, or even now, as you reflect on that now, your perspective is different now. Uh, how, do you, how do you reflect on, on that as well, you hear well, that?
0: Actually, it's not much different. Uh, My my internal self was rewired after that accident. Tears come quickly to me now. I find myself, uh, I easily attune. I go to films. I go to a theater. I read a novel. Uh, Case in point, about a year ago, I read a novel by a Roman Catholic author, Michael O'Brien, called Island of the World. It's a very powerful novel. And um, uh, when I got done reading that novel, I closed the pages I sat for a minute in silence, and then I just wept uncontrollably. Mm. It just happens to me all the time. Uh, the emotions are are much c- closer to the surface. It's a little mm-hmm. like the uh, thermal activity at Yellowstone National Park, just below the green grass. Mm. And uh, that's just one example of many how I've just been rewired. And yeah. I haven't gone back to what I was before.
1: Yeah, sure. How can you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it it your your expression suffering. You know you, you you can't get over it. You absorb it into your life. It reminds me of uh, I think it was a as a dialogue in a movie, or a TV show. I thought it was a country song, but when I reflected on this, I remember it was a TV show. But the the line was this: the pain won't go away. I just make room for it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. That,
1: that's similar to what you're, you're saying here.
0: Yeah, that's, that's uh, nicely put, right. And yes. that's been true of my kids, too. In fact, uh, just a few days ago, um, they were all here, my kids and stepkids and, and their spouses and children, on and off for about a week. And um, some live in town, some don't. And one night, my kids happened upon some DVDs that I had created based on old film footage of our family when we were young, of their mother singing because she was a professional musician, of athletic events, of domestic uh, life, and so on and so forth. I mean, it was really a rich, and we watched it together. Just my three kids, their spouses, and me. Pat went to bed. Her girls had to go somewhere else. And um, wow, what an experience for us. The spouses had never seen Linda and Diana Jane in action, moving and talking. Mm. and we reflected so long after that experience, and it was sad, it was joyful, it was beautiful, mm. laughed a lot, but it's still current. It, it has never gone away, and I'm glad for that for my kids I, because because we've kept it in currency in our family life without being obsessive or morbid about it. I think it's really created the conditions that have enabled my children to become unusually healthy people. And those
1: are sacred moments that a stranger cannot walk into a room and share. You know, you own that as a family. But even those who have married into the family... Uh, kind of inherit that, don't they? It's, their, it's part of their story, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, this leads to your reflection on, on identity. And again, let me remind you what you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> you know, loss of identity, obviously in your case, uh, profound loss of identity. But you said this, loss leads to a confusion of identity. Uh, since we understand ourselves in large measure by the roles we play and the relationships we have, we find ourselves in vertigo when these are changed or lost, I sometimes feel like I'm a stranger to myself. I'm not quite sure what to do with me. It is a new world for me, but as I, I but I act as if I were the old one. I'm not a hus- This is what struck struck me. I'm not a husband anymore, but neither do I perceive myself as single. I'm not a father to Diane Jane anymore, though I think about her often. I'm not one half parent team anymore, however much I would like to be. It is a particular and peculiar and confusing identity. And of course, you know, you lost your mother, you lost your daughter. Uh, So so in in time, how did you recover a sense of identity as a father and a husband?
0: Again, a really great question. Well, I mean, uh, this was a long process, obviously. I will say in general, this is what happened to me. I began to discover that all of our uh, identities are shaped as much by culture and our social location Mm -hmm. as anything else. In other words, my identity as a husband was based on the fact that I was married. I didn't have to get married. There are lots of people who are not married. Uh, My identity now is shaped largely by being a university professor. Well, someday I'm going to retire. Sure. And my identity um, was based on being an active father raising children, and they're all out of the home. My point, uh, Mitch, is that our much of our identity is shaped around things that are very fragile and fleeting. Mm. And what, what this accident did is it forced me to think more about what it means to have an identity that shaped largely, not entirely, I don't think that's possible, but largely in terms of me, myself, belonging to God and being a child of God. that that really is sort of the foundation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that when I marry or I'm single, I'm an active parent. Or, not, or I'm not one at all, I'm, I'm a professor, well, I'm not anymore. As these identities change, and it's inevitable that they will, there's a kind of continuity that continues. And that continuity is the fact that I am an adopted son of the living God and made in an His hmm. image.
2: Hmm. And,
0: you know, that, that's never going to be perfect. I don't want to give the, uh, the impression that it's true. But the, the accident really forced me to move down that road at a pretty rapid pace and to realize and to reflect a lot on how fragile human identity is for all of us. I mean, things can change on a dime, like an accident or a camp or the loss of a job um, or a change in the economy or a war. And well, you know, the list of course could go on or natural disaster. That is one of the insights and and one of the changes that occurred in my life over over a period of time. It settled me. It forced me to ask who am i really
1: and and those are things that gave life to your other your temporal identities your human relationships yeah i think i believe you you touch on that you expound on that more in your book a grace revealed yeah. uh, i don't know if you remember that you wrote that book i, I do remember that yes. <laughs> that's more recent uh, i i read that i think a year or two ago okay yeah. um, well, the, you know, what do, what, what do you observe ha- is happening w- when you see people suffer and they don't have a, a theology, they don't have a strong theology or, or you know, understanding of, of who God is and who Christ is? What, what do you see happening when you see people suffer and they don't have what you had? Yeah.
0: Well, in some cases, they've just got a really sturdy disposition that came to them through family background mm. and just mm. DNA. And uh, I know some people that believing or not believing they can bounce back pretty quickly and quote, move on with their lives. I think they miss a lot of opportunity in the meantime, but at least they survive and Remarry or do whatever they need to do to make life work for themselves. Uh, I think that's the minority, not the majority of people, in, in my experience. And of course, you know, I've gotten so much mail and e- email and phone calls over the years that it's a pretty large aggregate of of, um, of examples of anecdotal evidence. But I think that the greatest danger people face is not the initial loss, whatever it happens to be, but the long term consequences that are based more on the choices that they make. Mm. I call call it this, that we run the risk of what I call the second death. So the first death uh, creates this this explosion of what I call primary emotions, loss, loneliness, uh, well, loss even more than loneliness, anger, confusion, uh, those kinds of things. You know, the things that you can't not feel. They're just automatic. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, uh, you know, striking your knee when you're at the doctor. You're going to get a reaction right away. Um, the, the, the secondary emotions are the things that kick in when you're unwilling or incapable of addressing those primary emotions and doing the real work of healing. And the greater risk is to, to, in, in those, for example, self-pity where you think your experience is worse than everybody else, not different, but worse, or bitterness, or revenge, or uh, those kinds of things. And I have found over the years that those those are the things that lead to real self-destruction, and they're based more on a person's choice to how they respond to their uh, uh, unchosen circumstances rather than the circumstances themselves. I will add, Mitch, that one of the things that makes it a lot harder is for that small segment of the population that deals with serious mental health issues. Whenever there's a loss there, it really compounds the problem and requires probably medication, long-term therapy, some other things, because they bring to the experience um, some pretty significant mental health issues.
1: Yeah, well, that that's good. I, I appreciate your reflection on that. Um, your your view of God's sovereignty, you know, no doubt changed significantly. Uh, it didn't change, maybe grew uh, your understanding of who God is, and you do you do talk about that in your book? Uh, describe that a little bit.
0: Well, I come from a reformed background, so the sovereignty of God has always loomed large in mm-hmm. uh, my understanding of the of the Christian life. And there are some strengths to that because it does give you an assurance that God is sort of in control. Uh, But when his control seems to be out of control, Mm -hmm. it, it, it goes down hard. It's really difficult then because it gives the impression that God is simply mean. He wields his authority in a way that seems to be unkind and cold and cruel. And I think what helped me understand the sovereignty of God in a way that was pastorally rich and redemptive for me was a kind of rediscovery of the power of the incarnation, that we really have to understand the nature of God, including God's sovereignty through the incarnation. Because when we look at the face of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. we see all of God, not just some of God, All of God. You know, the church fathers in the third and fourth century said that the incarnation was not kind of provisional. So God gives us a little glimpse of who He is. But there's a God behind the God that's hidden from us. No, when we see Jesus Christ, we see God. And when, when I began to meditate on that and saw God in the face of Christ, it changed my perspective on the sovereignty of God. I saw it as less cold and cruel, uh, but more as uh, a promise or an assurance that God is in this story. God is going to work it out redemptively. God does not zap people or cause suffering. Somehow God is in all of it. A good example, uh, I didn't put this in the book, but I, I had a conversation with a really fine novelist uh, oh, maybe uh, 10 years ago or so. He wrote A uh, Piece Like a River, Leaf Inger is his name. He's written some other novels. He's a wonderful Christian man. And uh, <clears throat> we were having coffee together and I said, well, are you working on any other novels right now? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I am. Uh, and then he put it this way, I'm just getting to know the characters. <laughs> and one of them is starting to really bother me. He's hmm. going to cause me trouble. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're writing this novel. That doesn't make any sense.
1: You're making up these characters.
0: Yeah, that's right. You're creating them. No, it doesn't work that way. Is that the author creates characters that develop a kind of life of their own. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the author and the characters develop a kind of relationship. And though the story is mine, the story at the same time, mm-hmm. at a different level, is, a also, is also theirs. Yeah. Well, you know, you think about the incarnation. It's like God, as the author of the, of the whole human story, decided to step out of that role as an author and write himself in as a character in the story itself in such a way that the character didn't know it and had to figure it out. When Jesus was two, he didn't know what he knew when he was 12, yeah. And when he was 12, he didn't know what he knew when he was 30. He had to learn that stuff. He learned obedience through what he suffered, as the book of Hebrews says. And when I began to ponder this, it just blew my mind, Mitch. honestly. It just changed the game entirely for me. And I found peace in it.
1: It's a wonderful, wonderful perspective. Uh, you, you, you write this in, in the book in relationship to that. You say even even human freedom then becomes a dimension of God's sovereignty. Yeah. As if God were a novelist who had invented characters so real that the decisions they make are genuinely their decisions. Mm-hmm. And I remember that uh, that sentence uh, definitely stood out to me. Yeah, I love your reference to the, the the understanding the sovereignty of God in light of Christ's suffering. It reminds me of as you were talking, I I, I would flub it up if I try to remember it or cited by memory. Um, the the pressure would uh, make me forget the the lines. But Hebrews 12, 1 and two were were to Uh, in a sense, consider the, you know, realize there are cloud of witnesses who have gone through what we go through. Chapter 11 no doubt talks about that and the motivations to, you know, put aside things that hinder, sins that entangle us so that we can run with perseverance. But the, the key thing where our attention is to be is on Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for here's his example to us. Uh, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I, I, really, appreciate, I really appreciate you reflecting on the sovereignty of God in light of Christ in our incarnation it uh it it helps us it encourages we don't make sense of it all it's still a mystery no, it's
2: that a mystery. there's
1: comfort we can lean into that quite uh quite profoundly yeah yeah um in closing uh, a lot of the listeners are pastors church leaders and then i i yeah so a lot a lot of our uh, the listeners are either pastors church leaders or i i refer as people who love the church uh, so they're not just people in ministry, but people love ministry, support the pastor, love the pastor and what, what the pastor does, what he goes through. Uh, in closing, what would you say to the pastor who is preaching to people Sunday after Sunday who are experiencing, again, pain is relative. Someone who's going through a financial burden, that's as heavy a load on them as what you and I went through. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, it's their reality uh, what would you encourage, in light of our conversation here today, what would you encourage and, and say to them in closing? Well,
0: as a their regular preaching or teaching ministry, just to be faithful to the Bible and uh, uh, cover the whole right on. A three-year period of time. Uh, don't pick and choose, Good. including on the tough, tough passages, too. I mean, that's one of the advantages of following a lectionary. I'm not suggesting it, but... Mm-hmm. It kind of protects pastors in the church. So, I mean, I think that's one thing. And when you preach, when it comes to pastoral care, it's a little different uh, story. This is the need to have a community of pastors, not just an official pastors in the church. In other words, lay people who are committed Christians, Mm -hmm. because the kind of caretaking that's required in the case of irreversible or cat has to be long-term. It, nothing is gonna happen in the first three or six months. Best to do is to be consistently present in the lives of people, uh, to keep give them a lot of room so that they engage with you at the proper time. I learned this, by the way, in being a kind of father and pastor to my own children, is that I couldn't impose on them a time uh, in which they were going to work this thing out. I had to be sensitive to and attentive to the cues that they gave, and that has continued to this day. So, case in point, just a few months ago, I was in Seattle, uh, welcoming a second grandson into the world of my my youngest, John. And he's twenty nine, and um, he, his older son is two years old. and We were sitting on the back porch, and he looked at me and said, "You know, Dad." Peter was about the age that I was when mom died. And he wow. said, I watch, I watch Peter with his mother, and I see how much he's receiving and absorbing of her. Mm-hmm. Even though if he were to die today, he, wouldn't he would not remember. Her. Yeah, wow. But I got so much of mom, and I'm discovering this in watching Peter with his mother. Now, that's 27 years later. But what you have to do is kind of create the space for people and then be sensitive to the cues when they're ready to do the work rather than to impose bromides and cute little phrases and, and, and um, answers that aren't going to lodge. They're not going to grab hold rather than a whole lot of people for only the first three months.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's not just preaching the word, but but living it out amongst people. And yeah, it's, it strikes me having stopped pastoring a church several years ago, how we, we forget that the people we're ministering to week after week have been living a, a whole week without us apart from the church. Yeah. And they've been going through a lot of experiences. And sometimes we forget that, and we, we relate to them as though they're here to serve us. You know, they're here to serve our ministries. But if we're walking with them, involved in their lives, we're going to know, uh, as as you said, I love, I, I'm i very committed to expository preaching and letting the Bible speak for itself. And when you're with people, you know how that Word's going to address their, their everyday lives. And the Holy uh, Spirit
0: will address will address them in the way that is most fitting. Amen. Yeah. It, might be, it might not be your way. The Holy Spirit is always the bridge between the pastor and the people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In addition, obviously to the Word of God. There's a story, so there was a, a former student lost a, a seven-year-old in a tragic boating accident, and, oh, they suffered just unspeakably. And, you know, I wouldn't see them every week, but I saw them pretty consistently over a long period of time. So I was the one who eventually went up with them to the camp where this uh, son of theirs died for the first time after, and it happened maybe two years later. And I- again, it's long haul. Mm. And that can't you know, for a lot of people, long haul. Well, good, uh, good last word. Jerry, thank you
1: so much. This has been, again, encouraging to me. Great to meet you. Uh, I, I was telling people today that I was going to be talking to one of my favorite authors.
2: No, uh, so,
1: thank you for taking the time to, to do this. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: I, w- I wish you well. You're doing, you do good work here. And I thank
1: you. you thank you, Jerry. Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Well, there you have it. I hope that was an encouraging uh, message for you. Uh, thank you again for listening to this Before You Quit podcast. If you have any questions or anything you want to share, please email me at mitch@beforeyouquit.us. Love to hear from you. It's always exciting to me when I get feedback on these podcasts. Uh, the one that I did a couple weeks ago on the tragedy um, a story by Bob Harner about his uh, loss of his wife and son to the flood here at Tocco Falls College. I was overwhelmed by the response, so thank you so much for letting me know how much uh, that podcast, as well as the others, have been impacting your your life. So until next time, uh, stay encouraged, and remember what we're told in First Corinthians fifteen fifty seven through 58, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged.